0: let me just remind you of where we've been in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this letter to a church that he planted that he is now having relational difficulty with, and he has learned some troubling things about this church. Now, for today, I want to remind us where we've been in the last few weeks because it's relevant to the passage that we're going to look at today. Paul begins by greeting them in chapter 1, and then he speaks to them about their identity. He says that they're holy, sanctified, set apart, He says that they have been the recipients of God's grace. He says that they are a hope-filled people. They're waiting for Jesus Christ to appear. I've been saying it the last few weeks. Even though this is a correctional letter, Paul is correcting this church, and he's going to have some hard things to say. Nonetheless, he does not speak to them below their God-given identity. He knows who he's talking to. These are people who've been redeemed by Christ, and so that affects his tone and how he talks to them. He's gonna address many issues in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but the first one that he dives into is divisions. Later on in chapter one, divisions, quarrels that have broken out in the church. Why? Because in the city of Corinth, Um, What was popular was for these notable teachers, these philosophers, to get a gathering in the city and for people to think that their philosopher, their teacher, was better than the next philosopher teacher and to form factions surrounding these teachers. Paul is mortified to find out that the church is perpetrating divisions amongst themselves because they're acting just like how the Corinthians act all the time. They're dividing according to leaders. Some are saying Paul's my leader. Some are saying Peter's my leader. Some are saying Apollos is my leader. And Paul says very strongly to them, did any of these people, Paul, Peter, Apollos, die for you? Were you baptized in their name? He centers them on Jesus because it's only Jesus' name, right, that really matters in the story. Last week, we talked about then how he goes on to talk about to these people who value this kind of earthly wisdom, this philosophical wisdom. He talks to them about how the message of the cross is foolishness to people who don't understand it. Last week, we said that God's foolishness is the cross, God's foolishness is the family that he's chosen because of the cross, that he would choose us. It's crazy. And then that he would use our ministries, that he would use our words and our service and what we do in the kingdom of God. That he would use that at all. All of this is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But God delights in using what seems weak or dishonorable for his glory. And we were talking over the last two weeks how there's a danger in packaging the cross into something slick and shiny. Thinking that will attract people When, in reality, we're stripping it of its power. It is its ugliness, its scandal. It is that love was laid bare there. That's why it's so beautiful, so we're not ashamed of the cross. Amen? So Paul's been talking about foolishness, but now he's going to say that God's foolishness is actually his wisdom, right? It's only foolishness to people who don't understand how God thinks. But for those who have been brought into the reality of how God thinks, we see that this is actually wisdom, And that's what Paul's talking about. So I always like to read the passage in its entirety first, and then we'll look into it more. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Oh, this is really what I want to point out. Don't forget that even though now we're in this long section about the cross and God's wisdom, Paul is still addressing what? Divisions in the church. As a matter of fact, next week we're going to get back to that specifically, but Paul has not drifted from that original thing. All of this is how he is addressing divisions in the church. And that's what I want you to see. Um, I want you to notice how Paul talks to these people about their sin. All right? So first of all, 1 Corinthians 2.6. Let's read this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, And that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right, let's look into this a little bit deeper here. First of all, in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Um, Paul is saying here that what he has called foolishness in the verses before is actually God's wisdom. It just looks like foolishness to people who don't understand it, and particularly, particularly, he mentions the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, If you spend time with us in our preaching, you know that a concept, a biblical concept that we often talk about here at the Gospel Tab is that of empire. It is a theme all the way through Scripture, from beginning to end. And when we talk about empire, we're talking about the entire human system that has been infected by sin and animated by Satan. As a matter of fact, out in our foyer here, we have our values on the wall, and you can actually read those values on our website. We spent some time in the last year articulating theologically what God is doing among us, and one of our values is margins. And so I just want to read this real quick. Um, We came up with this statement as a leadership team. Opposed to God's kingdom is human empire, sometimes referred to as Babylon in the scriptures, energized by human pride and satanic power. In its quest for exaltation, empire will always marginalize the vulnerable, Empire systematically excludes the poor, denies justice to the oppressed, and commits violence against the weak. Jesus does just the opposite. His anointing is for the forgotten corners of empire. We exist in empires as people living in love. While we are willing to proclaim the kingdom at the very center of empire's influence, it is our joy to find Jesus in, the forgotten, in marginalized neighborhoods and communities. Poverty, whether spiritual or material, is the condition for receiving the kingdom. If Jesus didn't meet us in our poverty, we didn't meet him right? It's where he meets us, right? It's the only place that he meets us. But we talk about empire as representing the whole human system. Originally in Genesis is the Tower of Babel, but then we see, you know, different forms of it. The Roman Empire, Greek Empire, Assyrian Empire, even the Israelite kings and the kings in Judah themselves became manifestations of empire. It is the government economic system. It is any system that humans create to govern themselves and Although there are better versions of empire than other versions, it's all empire, right? And in Revelation, the whole thing, which is called Babylon, gets defeated and Jesus sets up his own righteous reign. Paul here, when he says that they are not preaching a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this world, he's saying what we are presenting to you is not the wisdom of empire, It's not the prevailing wisdom of the rulers of this age. Paul knows what's going to happen to empire. It's going to be torn down eventually. He says it's coming to nothing. He goes on in verse 7 to say, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden um, and that God destined for our glory before time began. What is that mystery? We're going to get to that in just a second. But he's saying the wisdom that we've been preaching is not the prevailing wisdom of the world. It's not the prevailing wisdom of political leaders. It's not the prevailing wisdom of people who look smart or influential according to worldly standards. And he says, that's why you're having trouble recognizing it because it sounds so different. It sounds like foolishness because it sounds so different than what is normally called wise. And he goes on to verse eight. None of the rulers of this age understood it for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I want to just camp out on this for just a second. There is a pattern all throughout the scriptures, and Paul really references it here in 1 Corinthians 2.8, where the wisdom of the world, what seems wise to human beings, which is to say, by the way, I want you to notice this, to say it feels virtuous. It feels right to human beings, Right? The wisdom of the world is often propped up by the idolatries of empire. Okay, we're talking like some big macro level stuff now, all right? The wisdom of the world is often propped up by the idolatries of empire. And Paul's teaching later in his letters to the Corinthians is going to be that any idolatry is actually animated by demonic forces. So we have something that looks virtuous, but is actually propped up by idolatry, right? Right? by what empire worships or values. And even though it looks like it's just humans, it just looks like human leaders, behind that is actually demonic influence holding it all together. And one way that we could describe this, I have a little chart here that we can look at. I don't know if you can see that or not. Okay. Is uh, some people who talk about this will talk about the unholy trinity of empire. Um, Three prevailing spirits, lust, religion, and violence. And Paul, it really references all three in this passage, which I'll get back to in a second. Um, first of all, the value of lust. And by this, I'm not necessarily talking about sexual lust, although it's included in that. Lust, I'm talking about here as this impulse to absorb into ourselves things that we think will give us value, significance, meaning, comfort. Right? And the list goes on and on to take something from out there and to try to absorb it into ourselves. Sexual lust is certainly included in that. But we can also lust for power. We can lust for influence. We can lust for control, all those kinds of things. But it's trying to grab something and to make it part of ourselves. The Roman Empire in Paul's day really evidenced this idolatry of lust. Many empires do because they want what? More. They want more people under their control. They want more land. They want, And of course, this is the fall of every empire as well because the more they get, the more they lose control, the whole system crumbles. That's what happened to the Roman Empire. But there was always a desire for more power, more control, right? Some people who study this in scripture will describe this idolatry as, of lust as being represented by the demonic influence of Baal, which is an ancient god, one of the earliest gods at was worshiped in human civilization. And uh, if you, there's a story in the Old Testament where people are trying to get Baal to do something for them, some of the prophets of Baal. And what are they doing? They're cutting themselves, trying to convince Baal to give them what they want. But this is what Baal always does it will promise you the fulfillment or whatever you're asking for, but just leave you cut and bleeding, right? So that's Baal or lust. Religion. This was represented by the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And afterwards, some people who study this will talk about, it's basically religious idolatry or false religion. We've used the term bad religion. But um, some people will talk about a demonic force of Jezebel being behind that. Jezebel is this queen in the Old Testament who tried to control things religiously um, for her own benefit and for the destruction of God's people. And then lastly, violence. We could also just say manipulation or control, um, but uh, the ultimate manifestation of manipulation or control is violence. And by the way, empires love to monopolize violence. They love to be the only ones who gets to say when and where violence is used because it's an ultimate form of control. Um, in the Old Testament, Leviathan in the ancient mind is this sea monster this thrashing, raging, chaotic sea monster um, that tried to control and manipulate, um, and so it looked violent. Now, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. Are you all tracking with me? We're in some deep territory. Look at this. None of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom. Well, who were the rulers at the times of Jesus' crucifixion? There were both Roman rulers who participated in the crucifixion, and there were religious rulers who participated in the crucifixion, Why couldn't they recognize Jesus? Because their wisdom is lust and empty religion. And because Jesus didn't fit into either of these categories, because Jesus did not operate in the spirit of Baal or Jezebel, they could not recognize him. So who conspired with them? The spirit of Leviathan, violence, manipulation, control, to crucify the Lord of glory. And I would say that what Paul is talking about here is a pattern all throughout the scriptures and all throughout human history. Um, And we're gonna say more about that in just a second. However, look at verse nine. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, he's quoting out of Isaiah, what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit in an empire that is animated by lust, And by uh, violence and by religion, empty religion, Jesus appears. What is the mystery, the wisdom of God that was hidden before the ages that God is now revealing? What is it? It's Jesus himself. As it turns out, wisdom is a person. And he will not play by the rules of empire's wisdom. He will not play by the rules. How did this get demonstrated? Well, in a surprise plot twist. It was actually the confluence of, you know, religion and um, control and lust, when they came together to kill the Lord of glory, it was actually the cross that turned the whole thing on its head. And here's why, because there's a totally different kind of wisdom. How does the cross turn lust or bail on its head? Well, it's because at the cross, every need is fulfilled in God. We are eternally secure, eternally accepted, We are eternally safe. And so this means that this lust to always try to absorb things into ourselves loses its power because now the cross satisfies us. Religion or Jezebel, you know something about religious spirits, how you can tell them, and there's a lot of churches that operate in religious spirits. You know how you can tell them? Because you can never do enough. You can never do enough. You can never serve enough, give enough time, give enough. That is the language of Jezebel is you can never do enough. How does the cross cut out that spirit from our experience? Because at the cross, we receive grace and mercy. It is finished, it's enough. God has satisfied his own righteous requirements at the cross, and we receive the blessings of God. This is not transactional. We're just receiving from his grace and from his mercy. And then look at how the cross turns violence or Leviathan on its head. Because at the cross, Jesus does not conquer through violence or through a show of strength or manipulation or control. It is utterly the opposite. God becomes vulnerable. God becomes weak. God gives up control. He displays weakness, and it's at that place that he overcomes every demonic power. So the cross turns the whole thing on its head. It's a completely different kind of wisdom. Are you all tracking with me? Hey, I'm gonna bring this home here in just a second. Okay, so... Let's look down at verse 13. So this is what Paul says now. This is what we speak. This wisdom, this otherworldly wisdom that looks nothing like empire. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Paul's argument is that the reason we're able to even recognize real wisdom that looks like foolishness is because the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit, has been poured into our hearts, lives inside of us, so now we see things that we were not able to see before. And then amazingly, he ends this passage in verse 16 by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. What a promise that because of the Holy Spirit being poured into us and because the cross made that possible, that we actually have access to the mind of God for all of eternity. And I really believe, friends, that we will spend all of eternity learning more about God. Amen? All of eternity learning how he works. All of eternity learning more and more about his goodness and grace and how his love works in the world. We have access to the very mind of God because of what God himself has done in pouring out his spirit. All right, here's what I'm going to bring it home in these last few minutes. Remember what I told you Paul's talking about in this passage? He's talking about what? Their sin. He's saying, you can't be divided. You've got to let your ego go. You can't be comparing yourself to other leaders. But I love how Paul does it. Because what he doesn't do is just approach them and say, bad boy, (laughs) right? You need to be better." He's not just giving them a slap on the hand. What is he doing? Paul, he's going to do this over and over again in this book. You're going to see this pattern. First of all, he convinces them that their sin is worse than what they realize. Now, that feels counterintuitive, right? Because oftentimes, we want to make sin seem better so we can come out from underneath what's hard about it. Paul actually does the opposite. He's telling them, it's not just that you have ego problems. It's that you are wrapped up in this cosmic world system filled with all of these rulers who don't get it and demonic powers that are empowering it all. He's like, this is a problem, right? This is a big deal. It's worse than what you know. It's not just that you said something to your neighbor you shouldn't have said. It's that you're participating in this giant system, for Paul, in all of his letters, sin is not just bad behavior. You have to understand this. See, we make sin just about bad behavior, and then people don't get free. See, sin is not just bad behavior. Paul consistently describes it as a power that enslaves us and that is embedded in the whole system. We need freed from that power. If sin were just bad behavior, then maybe we could get over it ourselves. But as it turns out, we're slaves, So we need a liberator. We need to be freed, right? It's part of this giant big system. But then this is the good news. Paul is saying the cross is more powerful than what they know. The foolishness of God is actually his wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. That's a way for Paul to say the weakness, the picture of weakness of Jesus at the cross is stronger than all of the plans, purposes, wisdoms, teachings of empire, right? That display of weakness is stronger than it all, because that's where love came through and won the day, right? And he's saying, because of this, he's not just talking to them individually about their sin. He's saying, because of this, your identity as a family, as a family on mission, your identity has now been changed. So you see how different this is? This isn't Paul saying, you've been bad, don't talk about each other. He's saying, you've been bad and it's worse than what you even realize. We've got to talk about it because it's demonically empowered. It's all, you're enslaved to, but the cross can free you. And it's time for you to live up to your identity. It's time for you to live in a new kind of wisdom. It's time for you to live in a different kind of way because you've been called into a different society, a family on mission. You all following me on this? Okay, I think so. I didn't hear anything. You all following me on this? Okay, all right. Okay, so, So that's how he's talking to them about their sin. And I would argue that this is how the scriptures talk to us about our sin all throughout. Okay, Let's think about that unholy trinity. Hey, Isaac, if you could throw that back on. Let's think about that unholy trinity for a second and how this works. Let's take the issue of sexual lust, for instance. Um, We all know the idolatry of lust. There's probably none of us in this room that haven't participated in that idolatry. at some point, even in its sexual manifestation, right? So that's an issue. It enslaves us. The lust, the desire to draw in something for comfort or affirmation or whatever. And think about how religion plays into this by making us ashamed to talk about it, by making us feel like we'll never be free. So many churches who don't know how to preach to the issue of sexual lust because they don't know how to preach the gospel. They know how to preach the law. But all that teaches is people to hide, in their sin. It's a spirit of Jezebel. Where there's a church where people are hiding in sin, it's a spirit of Jezebel, right? And then look at how in empire it's bigger than us. This doesn't just affect us or our families. It actually, in the system of empire, perpetrates what in its worst manifestation? Violence against children and women in particular because there's real people on those screens, real people on our phones, listen, that ought to make us feel like, oh, what I'm doing is a lot worse than what I realized, right? I didn't, when I engaged it, I didn't know I was engaging all of that, right? But I'm engaging this big system that's demonically empowered, but the cross is more powerful than what I know. The sin was worse than what I know, but the cross is more powerful than what I know. And God doesn't shame us. He doesn't push us away. He calls us up to a new identity in his Son. To a new way of living, to a new way of being, right? This unholy trinity has been all throughout human history. Um, Some of us were in Senegal in May, and uh, poverty is so prevalent in Senegal. Really, it's a global issue of lust. You know there's enough resources in the world for everyone to eat, right? This is not, it's not as if God didn't provide for the human population, But lust, in one form or fashion, results in global poverty, right? That means that some moms in Senegal can't take care of their kids, so they give them over to the iman in the mosque. Some of the imans are generous and kind, but some of them beat the children, and some of them sexually exploit them. If you walk around Senegal, you will see kids coming up to beg all the time. They're taking the money back to their iman. It is the spirit of religion, right? And what does it result in? Violence, particularly against the most weak. There's other examples of this in human history in the West. I have a picture somewhere up there. It's a disturbing picture. I used to have it in my office for a while. This is Adolf Hitler shaking the hands of the German church who had almost entirely capitulated. If you know uh, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one of the few pastors who said, this is the logic of empire in religious form and I can't be part of it. But most of the pastors just became Nazis. Most of the pastors just participated in it. When Baal, right, the lust for power to control all of Europe and the world, when Baal and Jezebel get together, Leviathan is what results, the extermination of millions of Jews and other minority groups. Right? You tracking me? Now it's easy for us to see it in Muslim nations and in people that we were on the right side of history, but let's talk about American history just real quick. Um, in I was you can get rid of that picture I don't want it up for very long. You can um, uh, think about think about this. And I spent some time in Georgia this last summer with a friend who was driving me around his impoverished community, and uh, you know the effects of poverty on the African American population that he was working with. Let's think about this for a second. Why is it that African American chattel slavery? existed so long in the United States. And by the way, it is the spirit of Baal. Lust, power, it was economically driven, right? We need more crops, we need more land, we need more, right? Um, Why did it last so long? Well, it's because it was propped up by Jezebel. It's because in American pulpits, white Protestant pulpits, it was preached as virtuous, as wisdom. I drove past a church in this city in Georgia it was Woodrow Wilson's grandfather was the pastor of this church. He wrote the text defending Jim Crow from the Bible. That text was used for a long, long time, propped up by religion. What does it result in? Violence, even after slavery. There's still the violence of lynching and segregation and all of these things. And here's why I'm telling you this. it's By the way, always easier to see the unholy trinity and people who are different than us. Much harder to see it when it's our own story, right? Here's what I want to say, and this is the strategic part. I'm going to wrap up here very soon. Um, listen, I've had people ask me, why do you guys talk about race so much or the gospel tab? Why does this come up so often in sermons? Good question. I'll answer it for you. Here's why. I assure you, it's not just some random political agenda. It, it's worse than that. It's worse than just one election. It's worse than who I vote for or don't vote for, right? And we got to understand this, that racism is worse than just someone treating someone else badly in an interpersonal relationship. It's far more involved than that. This thing is embedded in empire. This thing is embedded uh, in empire in a way that is demonically animated. This is a big deal. We need the cross to dismantle it. But here's why we talk about it a lot at the Gospel tab. I think it's the responsibility of every family on mission to identify in its region where that unholy trinity is at work and in the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ to dismember it, disable it in prayer, and to bring it into subjection to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why we talk about it so much, because you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that this isn't a major regional stronghold in the Pittsburgh area. We have friends from Atlanta who come up. Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, and I love it. I really love Atlanta. But we have people come up from Atlanta, Georgia who cannot believe how segregated our neighborhoods are, who cannot believe how segregated our school districts are. I live four miles from where I grew up. Today, I live in a neighborhood that's probably 80% African-American. My kids go to a school district that's over 90% African-American. I live four miles from where I grew up And four miles away, the school district is over 95% white in a totally different socioeconomic class. And if that's not sad enough in and of itself, how we don't spend time with each other, then let's look at our churches. Because maybe the church is the place that's breaking it down. I don't see it in Beaver County. Not as precious few examples do I see this happening in Beaver County. And when it's hard to create change, it lets me know that Baal, Jezebel, and Leviathan have conspired together to create a testimony that's trying to tear down the cross. It will not be successful, right? Because the cross is greater, right? Um, Because the cross is greater. The cross is better. Um, I don't know. I think about some of this stuff. I'm going to end here. I think about this stuff, and I'm like, oh, my mind is blown. It's just like, it's so much worse than what we know. How are, how are we, a little church, going to make a difference? And here's how. It's because God, it's, look, they were a little group in Corinth. It's because God is calling us out into a new identity. And in that new identity, in that place, we reverse not only like the sin that we commit against each other, but these big forces in history. Get reversed because of what the cross has done among us. I hope you hear this morning that you are part of that story. You are part of Friends, I really believe. I've said this before. I, I might be crazy, but I really believe that we are making history. I really believe that there's going to be stories that are part of our family on mission, what God's doing in other churches that we're linked to. They're going to be told for all of eternity. Because God is confronting and breaking down all of these idolatries in our time, right? And God's going to use some of you to pray through it. God's going to use some of you to serve through it. God's going to use some of you to see the breakthrough.